Scripture reading for this evening will be coming from Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And it reads, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Good evening. It's good to see you here tonight. As always, we're very thankful for your presence and thankful to God for yet another opportunity. The privilege and pleasure is ours to be in his presence. He's certainly worthy of the very best that we have to offer. That passage you read, uh, heard read was going to be a continuation of the tips for understanding the Bible. And we'll return to that because the original plan was not to preach two sermons on forgiveness but such is life, so we'll get back to that one. Why do we struggle with forgiveness or being forgiven? Um, we're just going to jump right in and start making some application uh, to the sermon this morning and try to note some reasons for our struggles and hopefully provide some answers to overcoming them if uh, any of these are that with which you struggle. Number one, why do we struggle with receiving and being forgiven by God? I would urge that for many Christians, the struggle is a result of not believing that repentance and prayer for the Christian is the same in efficacy as baptism for the alien. So when we talk about forgiveness of sins, we often talk about it in terms of people who don't know the Lord, who need to obey the gospel. And about that, the Bible is very clear. We could read passages like Acts 2 and verse 38, that great and first sermon on what it means to be saved by God. When they ask in verse 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? We, we know the answer. And the answer is the solution for sin. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words that he testify and exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. This we know very well. We understand it. In fact, we read other passages about the blood of Jesus. Revelation 1.5 actually speaks of being washed in his blood. Acts 22:16 talks about our sins being washed away. And we would urge to anybody and everybody, as we did this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done. The blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you from your sins. He will wash them away, make you whole, cleanse you. There's power in the blood. And then we talk about Christians. And for some reason, in the minds of those who struggle, they don't equate the same thoughts. Acts 8 and verse 22 records a Christian, new Christian, sinning. His name is Simon. He was once a sorcerer who bewitched the people. After seeing the power that the apostles had, Peter and John, and when they laid hands on people, they received the Spirit. When he saw this, he tried to purchase the power of the Spirit with money. 
Peter told him, your money perish with you. You have no part nor lot in this. And then Peter said these words, repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray to God. If perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven. The word perhaps does not mean in that verse he might do it. The word means therefore or so then. Repent so then he will forgive. That's the point that Peter is making. Peter says, change your heart, change your mind, repent and pray and God will forgive. Question, why doesn't the one equal the other? Many Christians struggle with being forgiven by God after becoming a Christian, but they would argue forcefully that the blood of Jesus would be sufficient when you become a Christian to cleanse you. Why isn't that same blood willing and able to cleanse after you become one? I think for many people, they just don't equate them the same way, and we should. Number two, some struggle because we fail to connect forgiveness to faith. We touched on it this morning, so let me go back over it very quickly. When we talk about faith, I believe I said it some time ago, faith is everything. To the Christian, there is nothing more important than faith. And I would argue to God and his children, there's nothing more important than faith. Much of the Bible talks about faith, the need for it, what it is, how it works. And Jesus sometimes chides people, sometimes mildly, sometimes more forcefully, when they lack faith. God in the Old Testament is talking about Israel not believing in him, Numbers 14, 11. The book of Hebrews emphasizes the absolute need for faith. And again, I think we understand it very well when we're trying to move somebody by faith to obey Jesus. What happens on the other side of that? Very often for the Christians, we just don't keep talking about faith in the same way. But it is the same. The faith that moves one to obey God and become a Christian is the faith that sustains Christians in their walk with God. And Christians can no more refuse to trust God than those who would refuse to trust Him to become Christians. And when it comes to believing He's forgiven us, many people don't connect it to a matter of faith. But that's what it is. Faith is rooted in the character of God and the nature of God. Hebrews 11 and 6 says we have to believe two things. We have to believe that He is, and we have to believe that He rewards them to diligently seek Him. These two things are always going to be true of God and how we conceptualize Him. There's going to be His nature, discussions of all of the omnis. His eternal nature, His all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, omnipresent, that part of Him is His nature. That's the divine nature we're describing. But the second part is also always going to be true, and that is the character of God. You must believe that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seeks Him. That's not a matter of His nature, that's a matter of His character. And what the Bible is saying is you have to believe both. You have to believe that God will do what He's capable of doing what He said, and He will do it because He said it. Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so the way it works is we hear God's Word, we watch God act, we find the result, His nature, His character, we trust Him. Now apply that to forgiveness. The question would be this, what has God said on this subject? What has God done on this subject? And so you would ask, and I would ask, which one is going unbelief? Which one don't you believe? 
Do you not believe his nature, that he's capable of forgiveness? Or do you not believe his character, that he will do what he said? That is a matter of faith. And I think when people struggle with it, they just don't make this connection. If you aren't forgiven, it's not because God won't forgive you. It's rather because you won't believe that he has. And without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please him. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, James has a, a double-minded, a two-souled man. This is where the instability comes from. God is faithful. He is worthy of our faith. Number three, we think too highly of our sins. Will God forgive me? We touched on it again this morning. And I might ask, well, let me say this as nicely as I can. I mean, who are you that you don't believe God would forgive you? He's forgiven wicked nations. You read the book of Jonah. That's Assyria being forgiven. He's forgiven sinful kings. That's Manasseh we talked about being forgiven. Immoral people, 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. You did these things. He forgave them. Idolatrous people, Acts 19. A blasphemous murderer, Saul of Tarsus, 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 17. What have you done that is so bad that it's beyond the pale of God's goodness? We listed a bunch of sins this morning. We talked about the fact that God added the phrase, and such like. I mean, what is it that you believe in your heart about you that is so bad that nobody in human history has ever done it, and that yours is so unique and special that God won't forgive it? Just what are we thinking along those lines? Human sacrifices were forgiven. Babies in the fire. Homosexuality, drunkards, liars, Leviticus 18, Romans 1, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, murderers of Christians. But listen, when I say murderers of Christians, we're thinking about Saul of Tarsus, we're thinking about the Jews who killed Stephen. Take a step backward. Before Acts 2, before Acts 7, before Acts 8 and 9, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Who did we kill? His own son? Yeah, we killed him too. And what did he do? Father, forgive them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. The same day there was added unto them about three— You mean to tell me that the God of heaven forgave the murderers of his son? Now, when you are walking around continually thinking, but he won't forgive me, is that prideful or what? I mean, how proud of you are your sins? You just aren't beyond the pale of God's goodness, and he's demonstrated that over and over again. Number four, we think God is like us. And God has repeatedly said he's not. Look at a couple of passages with me. Look back at Psalm 50 and listen to God talk to his people. 
And he says it here, and he'll say it in another place. We'll look at another passage right after this, and then we'll talk about both of these passages. The first one is Psalm 50. The second one is Isaiah 55. If you want to turn, mark both places, I'll give you time. See, y'all make the sermon long by turning so slowly. <laughs> Isn't that good how we can blame each other for Let's look at Psalm 50. Here's the Lord saying he's not like us. Psalm 50 and verse 21. There God says, these things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Hold your finger there. We'll come right back. Look over Isaiah chapter 55. Hear it again in verse 8 and verse 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So here's what happens. People read these passages, and they misunderstand them. The mistake that people make when they read these passages is they read them, and they hear God saying, you can't be like me that your ways cannot be like my ways. That, that's the way people read the passages, and it's, it's the way they interpret them. What I want to suggest to you is that's not what the passages teach in either place. In fact, if you'll turn back to Psalm 50, we'll reread it, read a couple other passages, and here's what God is saying. God is not saying your ways can't be like mine, and, 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 and you can't be like me. He's actually saying the exact opposite. He's saying, I can't be like you, and my ways can't be your ways. He's actually saying the exact opposite in both places. Go back to Psalm 50, and let's read it in both places. Notice when you get back there, go back to verse 16 and listen to what God says. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. In fact, he continues, when you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things... You have done, and I kept silence. Here's what he says. You thought that I was like you. He's not saying, you can't be like me. He's saying, no, I can't be anything like that. In fact, I'm not like that. Not like that at all. In fact, God is saying to these same people, go back just a few verses earlier. Go back to verse 14. Here's God's position. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. God's silence is, not, is mercy and long-suffering. It's not endorsement. God is actually pleading, repent, so I can have you back. On the other hand, Israel is pleased with the sin. And God says, listen, I kept silence. I wasn't approving of that. I, I, I'm not like that at all. 
No, I take no pleasure in all of this sin. I'd rather you repent and come back to me. God's not saying you can't be like me. He's saying I can't be like you. But listen, he doesn't say it just here. In Isaiah 55, he says the same thing. There, though, it's just the opposite state. In verse numbers 8 and 9, again, people read the passage, my thoughts are not your thoughts, but what you have to do is go back just a few verses. Notice verse number 6. Here's God's position. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What would God like to have happen? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, what will he do? He will abundantly pardon. That's God's way. What's Israel's way? We will not pardon. We will not let a person have a second chance. We will not. These are the ways spoken of in Ezekiel 18. What ends up happening is we tend to make God like us instead of allowing God to make us like him. We have a hard time forgiving small debts, insults, mean looks, short answers, missed or forgotten appointments, late arrivals, inconveniences. In fact, people have been angered at me for unanswered phone calls. I called you. Thank you. <laughs> How nice of you to call me. You didn't answer. You know, phones don't come with a you must answer button. That's not a thing. And yet people are angered if you don't answer my call. I heard a man describe a phone call as a request. I thought that's a very good description. When you call someone, you're making a request. You're not making a command. They're not obligated. But this is the kind of thing that angers us. This is the kind of thing that we will have a hard time forgiving. So when we struggle to believe and forgive the unintentional, you ever done something to somebody and they say, you know you did that? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean, yeah, right. It was unintentional, and you're struggling to forgive. Now, imagine when it is intentional. You meant to hurt me. Yeah, I did kind of mean to do that. We struggle. So what then do we do? Well, heaven forbid the major things happen. Things like murder and lying and cheating and adultery and fornication and stealing and drunkenness and, you know, the list of sins that's in the Bible. And so we end up sifting God through our filter. And as a result of that, we make him like us. And we don't allow him to make us like him. He said, you thought I was like you. I'm not like you. My ways are not your ways. Why? Because I would abundantly pardon, but you won't. What happens then if a brother or sister commits sin in the church? How are they treated? Are they forgiven? When those that love us claim to forgive us and then remind us of it in the future, it becomes hard. Use it as a weapon against us, hold it over us, keep us in their debt. We might begin to think that that's how God is. And so if that's what they're doing to me, it must be the way God, no, God doesn't do that at all. In fact, God has made it abundantly clear. He forgives 70 times 7. 
You've read the Old Testament. You've read the book of Judges. You've seen the entire Old Testament history with Israel. Nehemiah chapter 9, as Nehemiah walks through that history and a remnant does come back. Why do we struggle? Maybe it's because we make God like us instead of allowing him to make us like him. Let me say one more thing and I'll move on. There are some times when young people make poor decisions. And depending on the nature of that poor decision, it can seem very difficult to believe that you can be forgiven. I don't know how I came across it. I was listening to the television, and suddenly there was just the news was on, and this woman was talking, and she was talking about this thing that's happening online. It's it's some form of extortion. So some person will be online chatting with a young person. And this person will convince that young person to send some photos that should not be sent. And sometimes the young person, oftentimes a young man, believing he's talking to a young lady, sends those photos. And this is where the uh, extortion began. Now that the person is in possession of the photos, this person now says to this young person, you know, I am a homosexual. I am out, and I'm going to take your photos, and I'm going to put them on the web and demonstrate to people that you are like me too, and that we are in this relationship unless you give me. And they demand money and payment and things of this nature. It's happening to young people. I was hearing this story, and they were talking about this. Can you imagine what a young person would go through if that was their circumstance and situation. Can you imagine the trouble of their mind, the agitation? They had a young person on their talk and going over what it was doing to their life. Finally, they told their parents. They finally got some help, so forth and so on. But in your mind, depending on what you've done, it can be in your mind very difficult to believe you can get forgiveness. And the more secretive the thing is, the more embarrassing it might become, the more known it might have tendency to spread, the more and more and more it becomes a a trap and a condition of the soul and the heart. What God is saying is he will forgive. And so we need to always seek his forgiveness. He's not like us in this regard. We need to become like him. Number five. Scripture is read properly, but believed improperly. In Psalm 103, the Bible talks about God and his forgiveness. And if you just read the psalm, it is glowing and overflowing with reasons to bless and praise the Lord. And it talks about God's goodness and his character and all or many of the things that God has done for us. And in fact, verse number three talks about not forgetting any of his benefits. Verse number two, praise or bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits, the benefits of God and all of the things. Immediately in verse number three, who pardons all our iniquities. 
If you just keep reading, you get down to about verse number 10. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Verse number 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his, you know, if God wanted to try to tell us he's willing to forgive, what else should he say here? How many more words, expressions, sentiments, and sentences should he use to express and explain, I forgive? In what way, as far as the east is from the west? I forgive. How? As a father pities his children. How does God over and over and over and over and over, he says, I forgive. We read these passages, and then what do we do with them? Somehow, and amazingly, we just go away from thoughts like these and still hold on to our sentiment and our thought. Titus 1 and verse number 2 says, God can't lie. These things have to be true because God said that's what he does. If you look at 1 John chapter 1, John lists four reactions a person can have to sin. And, and, and three of them, John says, listen, if we say, if we say, if we say, he says it three or four times here in the first chapter, if we say this, if we say that, he'll make the statement and he'll say, this is the conclusion. He begins in verse number six, if we say we have fellowship and walk in darkness, he said, we can't do that, we lie. Verse number seven, if we walk in the light, verse number eight, if we say we have no sin, well, we are deceiving ourselves and truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, great, that's what we've done as New Testament Christians. What happens if you confess your sins? If you leave the world, you repent, you confess, you're baptized, what will happen if we confess our sins? He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that true? Has to be. The opposite could be done in verse number 10 if we say we have not sinned. What would happen? We would make him a liar, and his word is not in us, okay? Can you take verse 9 and verse number 10 and go the other way? So verse 10 says, if we say we have no sin, we haven't sinned, then you'd make God a liar. Okay, but do that with verse 9. What if God says, you confess your sins, I forgive you, and we say, if we say he has not forgiven us, wouldn't we also make him a liar? Wouldn't it work the same way? If we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive. That's what he says. But we say he's not faithful and he's not just and he didn't forgive. Well, that would make him a liar. Friends, you, you can't really go around that any other way. We read the Bible, but somehow the things we believe before we get there override what the Bible clearly teaches and is trying to get across to us. Another reason we struggle. We may fail to see the importance to God of how we treat each other. Maybe we just don't fully appreciate that. And when we're talking about forgiveness again, as I said this morning, it's a huge topic. I appreciate that. And I understand that we struggle with forgiving one another, but that is kind of the point. That really is significant to God. 
And maybe it's the, the, the lack of realization of how much God thinks about the way we treat each other and how that affects his treatment of us. It really is profoundly important to God. Have your Bibles. Look at Matthew chapter 18. It's an interesting thought. You hear sometimes people ask the question, I suppose if I were to ask you this evening, if God has forgiven you, when will God bring up your sins again? I'll give you a few seconds to think about that one while you turn and make the sermon longer. <laughs> when will God remember your sins and bring them up again? Somebody will say, well, God would never do that. And if that was your answer, then you would be wrong. Because he will. Well, I've never read that in the Bible. Well, that's why we're here in Matthew 18, so we can read it together. Begin reading at verse number 21. Read down to verse number 27. You know this account well. The Bible says a servant is called in and he can't pay. He had a debt he couldn't pay. He pled for patience and the master had compassion. That's verse 25, 26, and 27. Since he did not have the means to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children, all that he had, repayment to be made. The slave fell down to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Please be patient. Verse 27 says, the Lord of that slave moved with compassion, released him, forgave the debt. What happened next? He also was owed money, and he sought payment just like his master. That's verse 28 to verse 30. That slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him. That fellow slave pled with him the way he had pled with the master. That's what verse 29 says. That fellow slave fell down to the ground, pled with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you all. Verse 30 says, But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. Verse number 31, his fellow servants heard of it, and they went and told the master. They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord, and all that had happened. What happens next? The master called him back. Verse number 32. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? What's he talking about? He's talking about the time when the slave came with the original debt. That's what he's talking about. He brought him back to talk about the original debt. He says, I forgave you. Of what? That's verse 25, 26, 27. You owed me, and you couldn't pay it, and you pled for compassion, and I forgave you. Now, that servant is back in front of the master. What's the master talking about? He's not talking about a new sin. He's talking about that one. And he says to that servant, I had compassion on you the first time, 
Shouldn't you have had compassion on your fellow servant? Verse number 34 says, His Lord was moved with anger, had him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed him. You know, that's the original debt. That's not some new debt. That's the original. What's the master talking about? I thought he forgave it. He did. I thought he released him. He did. And I thought, yeah, and the master's expectation is in verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do what? Some like it, some similar. No, it's not what's in your Bible. It says, the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. It could be the case that we just may not know how important it is to God that we forgive one another. Because that's that important. The master says to this servant, you should have done that. We sing a song, we had a debt we couldn't pay. Maybe another sermon, another time we talk about forgiveness. You know, that's one of the, one of the ways to stop struggling is to, to, to maybe put the things next to each other. Because what the master is talking about is, I forgave you something you couldn't pay. Well, what's that with us? The forgiveness of our sins. Now, it could be the case that sometimes when people do us harm, it seems, and maybe, do not hear me trying to make light of your sins or your injuries. I'm not. I'm saying, though, do understand that if you lie on me, it will hurt. If you ruin my reputation, it will hurt. But if my ruined reputation was set alongside the forgiveness of my sins by God, listen, this one's less than that. It just is. This man had a debt he couldn't pay. And he went out and grabbed the fellow servant over a smaller amount, over a smaller, that's the master's point. I had compassion on you. It is so important to God. He brought it back up. Number seven, we tend to think like the world, and that makes us struggle. In fact, I would urge every time we think like the world, we'll probably struggle. Well, what do you mean we think like the world? You know, it's popular for people in the world to say, you need to learn to forgive yourself. And so we try to do that. We come to know what sin is, and we sin. And when we sin, we have a hard time reconciling our actions with those of being a Christian. I understand that. Sometimes, though, we live as if Christians don't sin. And we don't teach it, at least not overtly and outwardly, but maybe somehow it, it seems to get through Christians don't sin. Well, we actually do. And so when we do, we kind of have a hard time believing God forgives because if you do sin as a Christian and then God forgives you, well, you better not do it again. It's almost like saying, hey, we don't do it, but if you do it, and you, you listen, you get one shot. That's kind of the way we approach it. If God is kind enough to forgive you once, you better not do it again. 
And then we have this way of chronicling and, and kind of marking sins, a quality control for sins. Do Christians commit fornications? No, that would be one of those big ones. We don't really. Do Christians commit adultery? Do Christians get drunk? What if you are a Christian and you sin in this fashion? What are you to do? The world says, now listen, what you need to do is learn to forgive yourself. And practically the church says God will forgive you, but listen, you don't want to do this again. And so you try to live those things out, and both people will in the end wonder, have I really been forgiven? My urging to you would be stop talking and thinking like the world and read the Scriptures. Where in the Scripture have you ever read anyone told, forgive yourself? What book, what chapter, what verse teaches forgive yourself? There's a verse that says, save yourself, but it's not actually you saving yourself. It's you move to obey Jesus so he can save you. There's a passage that says, deny yourself. There's a passage that says, humble yourself, submit yourself. There's many more yourselves. But what passage says, forgive yourself? In fact, the phrase, forgive yourself, never actually occurs in the Bible. Not the phrase. The words don't even appear together, except, at least in my finding, one verse has both words, forgive and yourselves in it, and they're not together. It's Luke 17 and verse number 3 where the Bible says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. It does say that. There's yourselves and there's forgive. But where does the Bible teach forgive yourself? Again, I would urge we stop thinking like the world and start reading the Scriptures. You actually can't. Forgive yourself because you sinned against God. Psalm 51, 4, David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. 1 John 3 and verse number 4, sin is the transgression of the law. Whose law? Yours? No, you, you sinned against God. As a result of that, God justifies. You don't justify. You don't make yourself right before God. God does that. So then... If God has forgiven, it's not a matter of you forgiving yourself. It's a matter of you believing God has done it. But we would rather, it appears, listen to the world. Have you tried to forgive yourself? How'd it go? You finally announced yourself justified? You at last got to the point where you said, okay, good, I've made myself clean now. No. God justifies. God forgives. What you're being asked to do is believe him. Jesus would say it this way to the Jews, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Son has made us free. God has forgiven. And so I would urge, stop trying to forgive yourself and rather start believing God has forgiven you. Be free and go forward trusting him who justifies. Number next, we struggle to distinguish between an act of sin and the life of sin. Faithful saints are not separated from God with each act of sin. Another day, another story, another time, we would start in Genesis 3 and we would move out of that passage and move forward for, at least in my estimation, much of the harm done to the way Christians think is done in Genesis, and it's done early in Genesis Three, I would urge. That said, we have this thought process that says when you sin, you are separated from God. 
And as a result of that, we fail to distinguish between an act of sin by a faithful Christian and a life of sin by what is now an unfaithful Christian. These are not the same things. Faithful saints are not put out of the light with every act of sin. They are not. If such were true, it would be impossible to understand 1 John 1 and verse number 7. And if such were true, the teaching in 1 John 1, 7 would be absolutely wrong. And it's not. 1 John 1, 7, the Bible says, but that's in contrast to verse 6, where someone says, we walk in darkness and we have fellowship with God. God says, no, you do not. Because if you walk in darkness, you walk away from me. That's God's position. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and seems to always be an and with God. I will give you this and I will do this for you and I will bless you with this and seems to always be a blessing and more with God. We don't just have fellowship. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. There is no way for that verse to make sense if every time you commit an act of sin, you are out of the light. There's no way this verse can be right if that is true. That's not true, and therein lies the problem. The person who walks in the light and lives a faithful life is cleansed from sin in the light. That's what the verse says. We have this notion where that person is put out of the light, and until they repent, make it right, they will not get back into the light. And so they're in, and they're out, and they're out, and they're in, and they're in with the out, and it's just about 10 o'clock in the morning, and then they're in, and they're out, and they're out, and they're in. That's not what 1 John 1, 7 teaches. And if that is your understanding, it will be very difficult to appreciate the forgiveness of God. What if you do sin? Verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you do not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We as God's people have to come to grips with the reality of sanctification so that we can stop threatening each individual saint's salvation. There is a difference between salvation and then sanctification. There are any number of passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 7, 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 19, 1 Peter 2 and verse number 2, 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, the entire book of 1 John. If we teach that God's children are secure in their salvation, that is not to teach that once saved, always saved. That's not the same thing. To teach that God's children who walk in the light, if they sin, they never leave the light. That is not to teach once saved, always saved. It's not the same thing. On the other hand, to fail to teach that a sin is not the same as a life of sin, well, now that's detrimental and unscriptural. To fail to teach that a change of heart and walking in darkness is how one leaves the Lord, that is, again, detrimental and unscriptural. It may very well be a huge contributor to why we, quote, unquote, lose so many of our young people. 
carrying around a burden like that for years on end, decades on end, is far from what God would have them to understand, but it becomes exceedingly difficult to bear such a burden, and it's not biblical. Number nine, we must stop misidentifying ourselves. Jesus and the Jews are having a conversation in John 8, verses 34 to 44, about whose children they are and who is their father. And it has, I don't know, it seems, well, let me just say it. Christians are not sinners, okay? I don't know why it is so comforting for some of God's children to refer to Christians as sinners. I don't know the reason for that, but it's a frequent occurrence. Christians are called a lot of things. They're called new creations, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Children of God, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Saints, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Now, can a Christian turn away and walk in darkness and leave the Lord and become a sinner? Yes, Hebrews 3 and 4, James 5, 19 and 20. That can happen. But by definition, then, they're no longer faithful, and now they have turned and walked away. Can that happen? Absolutely. But I mean, in a room like this, with people who are faithful, somebody will get up and comfortably say of everybody in the room and everybody listening, Lord, you know we are all sinners. That's not true. And yet, it's said with such comfort. It's never questioned. We wear it around like it's right, and it couldn't be more wrong. Faithful Christians are called a lot of things in Scripture. They're never called sinners. I started this. And before I knew it, I was through the whole New Testament. And I appreciate the time that's on the clock, and so I appreciate your patience. I do. But if you have your Bible, please, I beg you, indulge me. You can talk about me later. <laughs> I feel like that was really a good time for you to say, no, Eric, we wouldn't do that. But I, <laughs> I'm not sure now. I'm not sure. Let's do this together. Well, I'll try and do it as quickly as possible. Turn to the book of Romans. We'll do this as quickly as possible. And I, again, I appreciate your patience. Some of these are earlier in the text, and some take a little longer, and some are not as explicit. But I thought it's really interesting the way the New Testament, how inspiration describes God's people. Romans, start in verse 7. We'll just read that one verse. Notice what Paul says he's writing to. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to the next book, 1 Corinthians. You see how this is going to go. We'll be in 2 Corinthians next if you want to get ahead. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse number 2. Who is Paul writing to? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints or called saints, saints by calling. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, yours, theirs, and ours. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Galatians chapter 1, verse number 2. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints 
who are at Ephesus. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul and Silvanus, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ to you and peace. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers grace in verse number two, peace in verse number two. He says in verse number three, we give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is fitting in the faith. First Timothy chapter one and verse number two. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 1, verse number 4, to Titus, my true child in this common faith, grace, and peace. Philemon chapter 1, verse number 2, and to Aphippa, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Verse number four, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Verse number 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Hebrews, difficult to find because the Hebrew writer just jumps right in and begins to talk about Christ and his superiority, chapters 1, chapters 2. But eventually he does say something about the saints. In chapter 6 and verse number 10, he refers to them as, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. First James chapter 1, James refers to them as the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, and he says, greeting, 12 tribes is a reference to spiritual Israel, God's people. Second Peter or First Peter chapter 1, down to verse number 4, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, called us to be born again, a living hope, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've obtained an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. These are people who are heirs of God and Christ. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse number 1, Simon Peter, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He goes on through that book and describes them in a variety of ways. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he refers to them in chapter 3 as children of God. Chapter 5, verses 11 to 13, he refers to them as having eternal life. Second John, chapter 1 and verse number 1, the elder unto the lady and her children whom I love in truth. Third John, same idea. The first four verses, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Jude says in verse number 1, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept in Jesus Christ. 
Christ. Revelation 1 and verse number 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ God gave them to show his bond servants the things which must soon take place. 27 books. These, these epistles from Romans to the end of the chapter referring to God's people. And, and he know, where are we called sinners? Why is that a comforting thing to say? Who does that help? What benefit? Blessing. It's not humility. It's not. It is absolutely false to refer to a person as a sinner because they violated God's law, never obeyed the gospel, will not submit. And they say, unless he'll save me, yes, even you, praise God, I'm coming. They come to Jesus, they die, they're buried, they rise, and guess what they get to be called now? A sinner? You wonder why people struggle in their faith. Oh, I could wish this was only one place in all of the brotherhood where this thinking prevails. I wish, because maybe then we could meet those individuals and talk to them and share with them, that's actually not right. Oh, wouldn't it be great? But it's not. It's so pervasive. And it's so accepted. It's as if, yeah. We're just, you know, when you do that, it makes one question and wonder, well, what was the point of dying to become new if I remain the same? It's not the way the Bible talks about it. It's not even remotely close. In fact, this thinking is what robs Christians of the motivation to live as they ought and be what God calls them to be. Hear it in John's words in 1 John chapter 3. John says in verse number 1, See, see how great love the Father has bestowed upon us. Do you see it? See how great love the Father has bestowed upon us. What love? That we should be called sinners. No. No. Don't see that. See what great love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now, not tomorrow, not next week, not if you live perfectly, not if you never make a mistake, not if somehow you figure it all, not if you forget. No, now we are the children of God. It does not appear yet what we will be. We know this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But please read verse 3. What's the motivation for living a pure life? What's the motivation for purging yourself of sin? John says, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. The very motivation that springs one 
to live the consecrated, sanctified, holy life is the very reality that I have been forgiven and I am his child. And I wake every morning seeking to bring glory to my Father. That is what the Bible teaches. And friends, if we don't get there, we will absolutely continue to struggle. Came across this um, sermon illustration. It's about uh, James Garfield. And the illustration said he was a religious man. It said in some way he was a, a, a preacher of sorts. But it went on to say, it was said of him that he was ambidextrous. He could simultaneously write Greek with one hand and Latin with the other. Then it said in 1880, he was elected president of the United States, but after only six months in office, he was shot in the back with a revolver. He never lost consciousness. At the hospital, the doctor probed the wound with his little finger to seek the bullet. He couldn't find it. So he tried a silver-tipped probe, and still he couldn't locate the bullet. They took Garfield back to Washington, D.C., and despite the summer heat, they tried to keep him comfortable. He was growing very weak. Teams of doctors tried to locate the bullet, probing the wound over and over. In desperation, they asked Alexander Graham Bell, who was working on a little device called the telephone, to see if he could locate the metal inside the president's body. He came, and he too failed. The president hung on through July, through August, but in September, he finally died. Not from the wound, but from infection. The repeated probing, which the physicians thought would help the man, eventually killed him. The story went on to add, so it is with people who dwell too long on their sin and refuse to release it to God. Just keep holding on and Christians end up dying of infection. God has forgiven and we need to believe that and move on. Not a Christian become one. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. <laughs> we have good news. And the good news is you can be forgiven. The good news is you can leave that life and become a new creation. That's the good news. If you've never done that, you need to. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you will repent, if you will have a broken spirit, a contrite heart, if you're willing to give up your sins, if you're willing to do that, then God will forgive. And no sin is too bad. If you're willing, God is willing. Jesus Christ came for you. Would you come to him? Confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and God will do just that. But if you have, if you need to, read 1 John, all five chapters, again and again and again, Beloved, now are we children of God. And that hope needs to move us to purify ourselves.
we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.